Hello and welcome to another episode of Twimble Talk, the podcast where I interview interesting people doing interesting things in machine learning and artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Before we get going, I'd like to send a huge thanks to our friends at HPE for sponsoring this week's series of shows from the O'Reilly AI Conference in New York City. At the conference, HPE presented on InfoSight, which is the company's cloud-based AI ops solution for helping IT organizations better manage and ensure the health of their IT infrastructure using AI. I've previously written about AI ops, and it's definitely an interesting use case for machine learning. To check out what HPE InfoSight is up to in this space, visit twimlai.com HPE. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Delip Rao. Delip is the vice president of research at the AI Foundation. Uh, previously, he founded the research consulting company Juiceware and the Fake News Challenge as well. And he's one of my favorite AI people to follow on Twitter, where he tweets from at Delip Rao. Delip, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you for having me. I am really looking forward to our conversation. You recently joined the AI Foundation, uh, where again, you'll be leading up research. Tell us a little bit about your background and what sparked your interest in AI and in particular, natural language processing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my background is in research, uh, particularly natural language processing research. And uh, um, and I grew up in India. I did, did typical uh, engineering uh, track that a lot of kids in India do. Um, and I was pretty sure I was going to become some kind of an academic uh, very early on in my career, I mean, in my college life. And um, because I found teaching very inspiring and I, I really wanted to be a teacher. And it was not, AI was not my choice uh, in the beginning. Uh, I actually wanted to become, uh, to do research in distributed computing. And and I realized that, um, uh, you know, um, there was this one school where I went, IIT Madras, and this one there was a, there was a faculty who was working on distributed computing, and he was on a sabbatical. So they kind of like put me uh, uh, in charge, uh, in, in care of uh, um, uh, of another faculty who was working on AI, and um, and this person was supposed to babysit me <laughs> while my <laughs> actual professor, you know, returned back from sabbatical. And uh, he did a very dangerous thing. So he gave me a couple of books thinking that, you know, it'll keep me busy. <laughs> and uh, I just got really hooked. Uh, so I, after reading this couple of books, I just felt like, okay, this is what I should be working on instead of distributed computing. And that's when I started working on uh, uh, on AI. And this person was actually like a very hardcore, like old school AI person. Like we were working on like planning problems and so on. Okay. Uh, so I actually started looking into AI planning actually to begin with and actually uh, looking at search algorithms and so on. Uh, and it was only like around that time, uh, I just got like curious about natural language processing because the data that we were working with involved text 
and natural language processing was supposed to be some kind of like pre-processing I was supposed to be doing, but instead I found the pre-processing itself super interesting. (laughs) So I kind of moved into natural language processing and then I went to graduate school because of that. Like, you know, I felt like, oh, I have to study more and and, and, and this is this is all ancient history by the way um so do you happen to remember yeah. the name of the uh the books that the your prof- your babysitter professor gave you to read uh yeah i mean uh so i think one of them was uh actually the book by uh nils nilson who recently passed away like i think as recent as yesterday or day before oh wow uh and uh yeah so he was a professor at stanford and uh, he wrote one of these very early ai textbooks um and then there was also the classic book by peter narweg Mm-hmm. Uh, and a store, uh, Russell and Norweg, right? Uh, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I started off with those two books. Uh, the Nils Nilsson book is like a really great uh, gateway drug for anyone I highly recommend. Uh, so then, then, of course, uh, the Peter Norweg book, uh, you know, puts you on a more serious route. And so you, I think uh, we veered off at grad school. Did you start Juiceware right after grad school? No, uh, far from it. Uh, actually, I worked at a bunch of different places. Okay. I, I you know, worked at uh, Google Research as a, kind of like a, a repeat uh, uh, intern. And then uh, and then I went to Twitter. And at that time, Twitter was uh, pretty early. Um, and it was so way before their IPO. I was like a, um, employee number 500-something. Uh, and... Uh, um, yeah, I was one of the first machine learning hires to join their um, anti-spam team, um, and they were uh, that until uh, that point, and they just formed a spam anti-spam team when I joined, uh, like you know, a few months ago, and um, and they were writing all sorts of interesting uh, rules uh, to catch spam, and I was like, oh no, that's not how it should be done, but <laughs> but but actually, you know, I got. I got schooled because I felt like, oh, I came in waltzing thinking that here I here I am with all my training. I'm going to go change the way things work. But then uh, that's when my first humbling experience happened. I, felt, I discovered that, you know, real products don't work that way. You can't build like simple models that will like uh, that you can just unleash it on the world and expect it to work. Um, and uh, they were doing a lot of things coming from deep experience, product experience. And that's when I kind of like completely shifted from my academic researcher mindset to a more product-based researcher mindset. Are there some specific examples you can give of where that disconnect really fell for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, for example, like uh, data set drift is something that we kind of barely refer to in academia, <laughs> right? And uh, we, uh, the, or, or sorry, the model drift. Uh, model drift is something that we barely refer to in academia, but it actually happens all the time in production. Uh, your models stop being relevant and you have to kind of like uh, figure out like some kind of a feedback loop to start like to keep retraining your models. And 
even sometimes, you know, there is this, uh, even you don't know much, there is a kind of a cockiness that comes in where uh, you say that, oh, you can build this model, you can solve this easily by building a model. Uh, but then you realize that, uh, the, you know, getting the model done and building all the engineering around the feedback loop for the model itself is so much more expensive than uh than like, you know, sometimes even writing a few rules or writing something very simplistic, which to a researcher, especially coming from an academic background, it almost feels like, oh, why are we doing this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, this is not science, why are we doing this? And this is uh, more importantly, I think in academia as well as in research, we are always encouraged to stay, you know, push the envelope and stay ahead of the game, right? And, uh, and when you see some heavily engineered system built using rules, you the natural feeling comes in thinking that oh, this is all like outdated, uh, and this and there is it's kind of very natural for somebody uh, coming from academia to look at it and feel a little like um, this is all outdated stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think with experience, uh, there is this uh, enlightenment that creeps in where you realize that no, actually that the so-called outdated stuff is actually like the most uh, appropriate thing to do in this context. And that's when, you know, I kind of, uh, it took me a, a few experiences like that, right? Uh, one, of course, I mean, I gave you an example of model drift. Another is like, you know, you build a model, the model does really well, then you're very proud of it. And then you try, uh, and then, you know, in, in a company like Twitter, everything gets uh, A-B tested carefully. And you end up also not just getting A-B tested, but also you're tested for how much compute that your uh, setup is taking, right? right? Because you're operating at that massive scale. Uh, and if, if a simple rule-based thing is accomplishing pretty much everything that your model thing is doing and your model is just adding like, you know, a few decimal point improvement or a few, or even like a percentage point improvement, it gets, it becomes a wash, but it comes at an enormous cost to the business, right? Mm -hmm. And so it just does not make sense. And as a researcher, you don't think about that because you're always looking at like, oh, can I improve on state of the art? And even if, as long as the improvements are statistically significant and I can publish, I can call it a win. And uh, and that's where like, you know, a disconnect happened for me. And I kind of, uh, uh, I felt like, oh, there is a different way to do science that is relevant in the real world. And I want to practice that. Have you developed that to the point where you've got some kind of fundamental tenets of science in the real world, or is it more a, a general idea and approach? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, I, so, some of it I kind of um, allude to in the book, uh, that we published, we can talk about it later. But, you know, I, I was going to say that I worked at Twitter and then I worked at Amazon and Amazon was also another amazing experience. And uh, it taught me a whole bunch of different things uh, on similar, uh, along similar lines. And I, after spending time at these two places, I started Juiceware, which was a research consulting company. And it was a research consulting company kind of built with that mindset. 
right? Uh, when you do science that is big, that will be baked into products, it has to be developed differently than the science that we do typically in graduate school labs that's meant for writing a paper. Mm-hmm. And and that was the mindset with which, you know, Justware was created. And in fact, all our clients we worked out, we worked with, uh, we, we actually built solutions that could be deployed. Not a single solution that shipped from us was like, you know, a sh- paperware or uh, shelfware, right? Uh, so you mentioned the the book, and I had this on my my list of things to mention in your intro. Uh, so I'm remiss in that regard. You just uh, published a book. In fact, it's sitting here on my desk: Natural Language Processing with PyTorch, uh, which you co-authored with Brian McMahon. Uh, and so we'll definitely dig into that a little bit more. You recently joined the AI Foundation, uh, which I hadn't previously heard about, but read a little bit about. And it's got this interesting kind of for-profit, non-profit structure, reminding me a little bit of kind of some of OpenAI's recent announcements uh, in, in terms of the direction they're going, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the AI foundation and kind of that structure and what, what the organization is up to in general? Sure. In fact, uh, the funny thing is now people are referring to, uh, uh I mean, uh, using open AI as an analogy, but we were doing, uh, we established the structure almost like, uh, more than a year ago. Uh, okay. And, uh, uh, and in a way, uh, I think this is great for mission-oriented companies. AI Foundation is a hybrid for-profit and non-profit. Uh, and uh, the for-profit, we are actually interested in, uh, in you know, building all kinds of synthetic content. And in the non-profit, we are actually interested in detecting the synthetic content. So actually, we started off with, uh, or at least the founders, they were um, interested in solving the detection problem. But then, you know, you can't just go off and build a nonprofit and keep it sustainable, right? You need something to uh, power the nonprofit. And uh, a for-profit is like a very sustainable way to power a nonprofit. Uh, like before I started AI, uh, sorry, started working at AI Foundation, uh, I started uh, uh, the fake news challenge in a very nonprofit mode. And that was... Um, that was not easily sustainable just based on grant money. Sure, we won some grant money from Knight Foundation and so on, but you know it becomes a massive exercise, almost like uh, and 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 it's not a sustainable way to build a nonprofit. So the, when I learned about AI Foundation and I learned that you know about their mission, which was to detect any kind of synthetic uh, media on the uh, on the internet or anywhere. And it includes uh, generated video, generated audio, as well as generated text. I, I was I was obviously very um, uh, excited about that, and uh, and then you know I was curious how they were actually approaching it. And actually, it was their uh, way of approaching that may sold me more than uh, you know the mission itself because I was already sold on the mission. I, I kind of uh, even before I uh, met uh, discovered AI Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, the for-profit is, uh, building products like, you know, is doing all this interesting synthesis work, uh, in the context of AR and VR, right? And, and this is great because one of my experiences that, you know, in order to be really good at detection, 
you also need to be really good at generation. And the way the for-profit and non-profit is structured is that, like, you know, the for-profit is actually building uh, technology that is so strong at generation that the non-profit, uh, the technology the non-profit is building also gets strengthened, kind of like a real-world GAN, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, they're both uh, reinforcing each other. And, of course, it helps for the for-profit uh, folks to like go spend some hours working on the nonprofit stuff, uh, and it's uh, it's a it's a really great model. Sounds like there's some commonalities between the kind of problems you're trying to solve with the fake news challenge and what you'll be working on at uh, AI Foundation. I'm curious, what were the key takeaways from your experience launching the fake news challenge and conducting that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Fake News Challenge was another one of those uh, humbling experiences in life. And I think this is great. Uh, uh, everybody should go through multiple such humbling experiences. And that's where like a lot of growth sports happen. So w- when I uh, started seeing around the 2016 elections, when I started seeing a lot of misinformation on, on Twitter, I'm very active on Twitter, as you know, and I have been for a, quite some time. Now I felt like, oh, there is all this misinformation coming. Why is Twitter not doing anything about it? Uh, why are these platform companies, especially Facebook? Uh, I mean, uh, at some point I used to be on Facebook and I was seeing a whole bunch of like random, uh, like complete uh, conspiracy theory, like right. nuts stuff being shared on Facebook. I mean, I'm no longer on Facebook, but I just felt like the platform companies were letting us down by not working on this problem. And mm-hmm. there was also a time where, like, you know, the like Mark Zuckerberg went on stage saying that is, Facebook does not have a misinformation problem, mm-hmm. right? Like, this was in 2016. Uh, and around that time, there was not just me, but a whole bunch of other people who were uh, interested in this problem started talking on Twitter and uh, I ended up uh, partnering with Dean Pomerleau. Uh, my, uh, he's, he, he was a professor at uh, Carnegie Mellon. He was like one of the pioneers of the uh, autonomous uh, driving program developed by DARPA. Um, and um, he was doing self-driving cars in the 80s. I mean, it's crazy <laughs> to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Dean and I uh, started the fake news challenge and we both were like, uh, you know, we are both entrepreneurs, right? And we have this sort of like entrepreneurial optimism. Uh, and uh, <laughs> at the same time, we are academics. So with academic background, you know, we think that we can solve anything. Mm-hmm. And we thought that, oh, we can totally like build uh, some kind of natural language processing system to kind of uh, detect uh, um, fake news. And it it didn't take us too long to realize how nuanced this problem is. And uh, and the more we kept, we, and then, you know, we started talking to fact checkers and journalists. I spent, I don't know, I can't even count how many hours with uh, fact checkers and journalists. And I realized that, gosh, this problem is so complicated and the work they're doing is so complicated. It's not going to be any one system or approach that will solve this, but uh, it will be like, you know, a combination of, uh, you know, approaches involving 
um, modeling, it involving human in the loop, et cetera. And that's, uh, that's when like we, uh, when we started fa- uh, fake news challenge, we thought we were going to come up with a solution, right? And right. that was <laughs> like the kernel of the idea that we'll come up with a solution. And then, you know, we thought, oh, maybe it's not one solution, it's multiple solutions. Then we thought, no, it's not even multiple solution. What you want is a community of people talking to each other. And that will create uh, like a factory for uh, coming up with multiple solutions and create more conversations, right? And so Fake News Challenge ended up becoming the sort of like a open community uh, where you know researchers interested in natural language processing, computer vision, etc., and also the fake news problem could come and interact with uh, journalists and fact checkers. And basically, these were two di- until the fake news challenge happened. There were two different communities that were not talking with each other as much as they are today, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, and I'm not uh, claiming that you know the fake news challenge completely changed that, but I think it set the tone. And as a consequence, what happened was there were a lot of uh, people who ended up meeting there. Some of them ended up starting their own companies around this space. Uh, some of them uh, ended up starting other events around this. And it created a whole bunch of conversation. And uh, and I think there is like a snowballing effect that happened after that very shortly. Uh, so I think the one key, your original question was, what were the key takeaways from the fake news challenge? I mean, the one takeaway was like, you know, always be humble, like keep uh, 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 the world is more complex than you initially think it is. And, uh, and there are surprising ways in which we keep learning that and relearning that. Um, and the other, uh, you know, takeaway is we found that, Okay, we build, we put together this community. This community needs to be engaged. We need to uh, do something about it. So we created a shared task, and uh, I would like advise anybody to not take up this job of creating a shared task. Uh, it's one of those uh, really complicated uh, jobs that require multiple people working together in order to pull it off like really well. Uh, and despite me working on it full time and even Dean spending a fair amount of his time on it, there were there was it was super challenging to pull it off, right? Um, uh, so and the shared you know, task in this case is the creation of the community or the creation of a solution to the problem. Uh, so what we did was uh, I put my consulting hat on and then I looked at uh, okay. I'm going to talk to a whole bunch of fact checkers and I'm going to find out what are the core problems that they're dealing with and if there is any science problem that needs to be solved in order to solve this problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, you know, it was obvious that one of the common problems that kept coming over and over it was, uh, was that of volume. So almost all fact checkers are like inundated with articles and they need to fact check. And many of these articles are like, you know, pretty much rehashing the same thing or different variations of the same theme. And therefore, uh, you know, it's not, they can't be very efficient about how they fact check, right? Uh, and how they assign labels to these articles or, or 
any kind of uh, additional context around these articles. And what we did was we created a data set where if I'm if I give you two articles or two uh, let's say two pieces of text, can you tell me if uh, if the two are related, unrelated, discuss uh, about each you know about the same topic, or um, or or they they contradict each other, right? Mm-hmm. And and. And it's a surprisingly hard natural language processing problem, right? Like it's, uh, uh, I mean, maybe not unsurprisingly, it's, it's, it's not, it's unsurprisingly hard natural language processing problem uh, because you're not just solving textual entailment, you're solving a whole bunch of other things uh, in order to get it right. And a lot of teams competed on it. Uh, again, you know, it's not one of those things where it, the data set is still out there uh, it's not like an MNIST or something where, you know, people have solved that data set and moved on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a really hard, challenging problem. In fact, uh, the problem was quite so interesting and challenging that uh, it got uh, used in a lot of university NLP courses, ranging from MIT to Stanford, or like, you know, every big and small university department uh, offering NLP courses in class projects and so on. People have published on the data set, and and yeah, um, so the the shared task uh, was was actually like a great way uh, to keep the community engaged. But man, it's really uh, time consuming to actually get that done and to make sure the evaluation etc was happening, right? And we kind of uh, like I wanted to throw in a little more excitement to this, so. Uh, 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 just where I decided to sponsor like prizes for the top three, uh, and, and it it became uh, quite successful. Like you know, there were uh, more than thousand people who registered for the challenge. Um, I forget the exact numbers now, but there were like uh, a few hundred teams uh, actually competing in it, uh, and. And yeah, I mean, we had to, uh, it was all automated, the evaluation, et cetera. And we ended up, uh, you know, uh, finding uh, the top three and awarding them prizes and so on. And the, I would say uh, the learnings from the fake news challenge were, uh, you know, one half was technical. I would say as it was as much non-technical as it was technical, the non-technical or softer aspects were like uh, the domain-related problems, like how complicated the domain is and who are the key people working on the domain and how we can facilitate and how to build a community and how to sustain the community and so on. And the technical parts of the thing is Actually, to me, uh, somewhat least interesting. I guess uh, it was more like, uh, how do we come up with the data set for this situation? And we came up with some interesting tricks to build the data set. But yeah. And uh, the competition ended a couple of years back. I'm curious, do you... Do you think that the data set and the competition is still relevant and are the solutions that were proposed uh, at the time still relevant? Or do you think if 
uh, you miraculously could clone yourself to run this thing again, like, would you see dramatically different results two years later? Uh, so the, uh, the shared task by itself as a natural language processing task is still highly relevant. Uh, and the approaches uh, that were proposed, they were all unsurprisingly deep learning-based approaches. They're all still relevant. Maybe today, if you were to do this, you would use like something like BERT or, or you know, some of these beefier models. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, the fundamental approaches are still uh, relevant. That said, you know, uh, when we created this shared task, uh, we called it FNC1 for a reason, uh, because we, we, we realized that, you know, none of the tasks that we propose uh, is going to be representative of a fake news solution, right? And in fact, uh, any solution to the fake news problem is actually coming from a multi-pronged approach, and there are so many problems to be solved. So, the volume is just one aspect of the problem. So we call it as FNC1 for that reason. So which automatically implies, will there be an FNC2, FNC3, and so on? And the answer is yes. Uh, Because it takes such a lot of effort and thought to put together an FNC2, uh, I am actively working behind the scenes, talking to people around what this FNC2 should be like, and whether and how to make that relevant to the new kinds of problems that are facing, because the kinds of uh, vectors that are popping up, right, like especially with around the uh, uh, deep fakes and things like that, there are different kinds of misinformation vectors coming up. How do we, uh, you know, select a task that faithfully reflects what is happening today? Yeah, let's jump into kind of the current state of fake content generation and detection. You know, there's, you know, fake news as you kind of traditionally define it in, in FNC1, and there's a bunch of sub problems there. Uh, you mentioned deep fakes. Do you, when you think about the, the content generation and detection landscape, what do you see as the primary challenges and how do you organize all of that in your head? I guess, you know, uh, practically every modality can be faked. Uh, That is audio, video, text. I guess uh, maybe tomorrow if tactile becomes another modality, you can fake that too. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But uh, So right now, you know, at AI Foundation, we are uh, interested in detection of all three um, dominant modalities, right? Like audio, video, and text. And each of these have their own uh, approaches for generation. So, for example, uh, with video, you know, you might already know about a whole bunch of approaches based on GANs, right? So these generative model approaches. And then there are all these approaches based on image-to-image transfer, like face swap and uh, deepfakes and uh, and so on, right? Mm -hmm. So... That's one category of, uh, of of misinformation. Another category of um, you know uh, synthetic misinformation is like in audio, you can uh, you know Takotron uh, set the trend, but like the latest WaveNet models have become so good that you know, you have to be not a human to detect if uh, an audio is coming from a model or if it is coming from uh, a human person. Right, mm-hmm. and I would say three ways to generate fake audio. One is uh, 
synthesis that is obvious uh, another is voice conversion where you know i can take your voice and then kind of like pass it through a deep network and then you know do a style transfer to somebody else's voice mm-hmm. right and so that way i can give you a power to say in anybody else's voice and the third is of course uh, replay attacks right uh, where i can splice a piece of audio from uh, a previous conversation in a different context and um and kind of like create confusion because i can make you say things out of context right right and and the replay so the first two uh, are actually uh, you need a model to detect that because especially with lots of compute and lot of uh, parameters like you know really deep and wide models uh, you can model um, like you can generate audio with really uh, high uh, fidelity uh, that the human ear basically uh, cannot distinguish right like um, uh and we are doing some experiments around that too but what we see is many of these generation algorithms right like synthesis or voice conversion algorithms end up leaving some high frequency artifacts in the data uh, sorry in the, in the audio that whatever your ear misses the a detection model can easily pick up on right um so so i, I mentioned two of the three um uh, audio based uh, like two of the three methods to generate fake audio mm-hmm. um there is also a third method which is uh, the replay attack and interestingly the replay attack has become such a i mean it is one of the oldest attacks right, right. because you don't need a model to do that and it's been happening forever right. uh, uh there there has been a lot of uh, work on uh, detecting replay attacks and in fact uh, icasp in last year they had a challenge for detecting replay attacks and uh and basically uh not last year in 2017 they had a challenge in detecting replay attacks and 2018 uh, and they were, their error rates were like around like 2.5% right uh by you know where they were able to ensemble all the top models and then this let's say the ensemble error rate was like around 2.5% and in 2018 there was this one paper i can give you the reference if you want uh where the error you know basically went down to like zero uh, and uh, so interestingly we can now with the help of models uh almost always detect replay attacks and that's possible because whenever audio recording happens the there's always like a whole bunch of you know differences uh, that are i mean channel and uh, room uh, like ambience pro, uh, uh, related uh, variables yeah. that all kinds of low level acoustic qualities that are yeah undetectable so that, by us but but the model can easily pick up the, that change in that when when you kind of like splice another audio into an existing audio So on the audio side are there uh what is the dataset landscape look like for you know folks want to play with this are they creating their own datasets or are there some interesting So far no, like uh, there hasn't been uh any other dataset I know other than ASV spoof which uh, was put together by a bunch of other researchers and Google um um uh, I think the Google uh, uh 
synthesis team is behind uh, the ASV spoof data set. And uh, basically what they're doing is they're collecting a whole bunch of different uh, synthesized audio and uh, from an uh, audio that has been synthesized by whole different kinds of uh, all uh, these three methods. Yeah, uh, all or these just three synthesis. Methods. I think they're only using synthesis and voice conversion, okay. uh, not necessarily replay, because replay I feel is like uh, um, probably nobody wants to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably uh, easier to create your own data set for that too. And also, replay is is kind of like a solved problem, mm-hmm. uh, like you know, I mean, uh, with whatever caveats, right? But sufficiently over-parameterized network, we can easily detect a replay attack. But the other two require some amount of work, uh, and I I think um, uh, this is this is actually the current ASV spoof, like 2019, uh, where you know detecting whether the audio came from um, oh, the whether it came from. Um, a synthesis system or a voice conversion system. Or another interesting task is actually, can I uh, you know, detect change in the room parameters, right? So imagine, let's say I have your Alexa, right? Right. I'm able to rec- record you in a different room. And then let's say I'm talking to you and I make you say something and I you know, uh, clandestinely record it. And then I go off and play that recording to your Alexa and make it purchase like, I don't know, 10,000 Barbie dolls or something like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, So if you do that, uh, how can you detect it, right? So can I change, uh, so you can kind of like generate audio by automatically changing the room parameters, uh, like different kinds of audio uh, by generating, I'm sorry, you can, by varying the different room parameters, um, like the size of the room, the the position of the speaker, and so on, mm-hmm. and that will change the reverberation, and that in turn changes the quality of the audio, and so on. It's interesting to think that you know a retailer, for example, a particularly e-commerce retailer, you know, has long since had you know huge anti-fraud teams that are working on credit card fraud and other types of transactional fraud. Uh, it's interesting to think of how, uh, you know, an Amazon or a Google now might resource uh, audio fraud because of the kinds yeah. of scenarios you're describing with uh, Alexa's that right. they're putting into everyone's house. Yeah. So, and, and this is a big problem for like a lot of bank, uh, like, you know, banks in accepting and credit card companies in using audio based or voice based authentication, right? Mm-hmm. So any speaker verification system uh, can uh, can be filed if it's not carefully planned. It can be filed by uh, doing some kind of a replay attack because most of the time it's something like my voice is my password or something like that that you end up saying. And, uh, and if, if it is recorded under sufficiently high quality conditions, uh, then I can use a replay attack and basically file any uh, voice authentication system. Uh, well, let's we'll come back to uh, some of the other modalities. But you previously alluded to this kind of the the GAN relationship between generation and, and detection uh, in the context uh, of audio. But I imagine this will apply generally. 
you know, how do you see this interplay kind of evolving between the detection and generation uh, approaches and systems? Like now that, um, you know, we're getting so, so much better at synthesis and conversion, uh, detecting synthesis and conversion attacks, are we already seeing, you know, feeding that back into the synthesizers and converters and trying to make better yeah. systems? Yeah, and uh, and that's uh, that's going to be an an arms race, and we have to accept that. Uh, so the better the uh, better the detectors become, uh, you know, you can imagine somebody with sufficient motivation, and it's not difficult to find them. Actually, engineer systems to overcome that or figure out exactly. Okay. Uh, how do I foil these detectors? I think an interesting challenge that would have that's not yet been conducted by anyone is look at all the approaches to detection and come up with ways to break them, right? And I think that will give us a lot of interesting lessons into building more robust detectors. Uh, and this is true with any kind of adversarial setting, like, you know, starting from fighting spam, like anti-spam. Um, so you, you come up with one approach to, uh, like, let's say you figured out that, you know, a lot of the Nigerian spam emails that you get, uh, you, uh, they are using poor language, right? Mm -hmm. And you try to, let's say you train some uh, engram-based thing that, detects it, you say, okay, the, the perplexity is too high, therefore it, this, this could be like a signal for spam. Uh, but then guess what happens? They will start copy-pasting. They won't even have to do like fancy generation. They will copy-paste like chunks of uh, good text from different places and file the detector, right? Mm -hmm. And now that you know that is happening, you'll start moving the detector in a different uh, direction. And I think uh, this is the game of working in an adversarial learning setting uh, that your attack vectors keep changing and you have to constantly keep monitoring the, um, the attack landscape and then keep evolving the solution. We're starting to explore a lot of this ground in the context of uh, adversarial examples on the the video side. There's a whole body of knowledge for, I guess, kind of meta knowledge for dealing with this kind of these kind of adversarial scenarios in the security research world. Like, do we have enough of that DNA within the kind of AI and NLP? realm or are we starting to, to get enough of that that we can you know we're not reinventing the wheel we we have for some like you know in nlp i can say because of uh, things like anti-spam etc mm -hmm. uh, there there has been that kind of work happening already right like mm -hmm. you know around uh, phishing and around spam uh, people have been constantly building systems that will involve that involves some kind of a feedback loop and preferably a human in the loop. Uh, that way uh, you can sort of uh, deal with this um, uh, shifting adversary. Uh, and we'll see similar things happening with these other modalities as well, right? Like, uh, yeah, so that's not, uh, I mean, that's pretty much on the roadmap for any serious company. So we dove into audio uh, on the video side, 
what's the landscape looking like there? I think deep fake is the thing that comes to mind. Uh, but even that is somewhat ill-defined and includes a bunch of different types of things. Right. So, um, like for example, like anything that is generated or sampled from a GAN, uh, today, uh, even the best GANs still end up leaving some kind of artifacts that it makes it possible uh, to do good quality detection, right? Uh, but I can imagine a future where compute becomes so easily available and maybe a different kind of modeling uh, paradigm where we are basically able to generate hyper-realistic image or like even photorealistic, uh, I mean, very uncanny images, right? And the thing about detection is I have this uh, thesis that all detection models are always better than humans at detection when it comes to uh, sophisticated attacks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as as things become more, uh, so initially, you know, we will have, uh, we'll operationalize it, we'll have more and more people looking at things and so on. But then once the adversaries evolve and then they decide to like uh, have more launch, more and more sophisticated attacks, then models will become in- indispensable for doing that, right? And uh, so for with, with, I think we are seeing some of that happening with GANs. And now with GANs, you can, uh, there are all these uh, temporal GANs where you can actually generate a sequence of uh, um, uh, of images that are tied to each other, so that it becomes like a video, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to like you know individually synthesizing each frame, right? Uh, I think that was one of the criticism with that with GANs. But then there is also you don't need a GAN, uh, right? Like uh, with things like celeb fake, et cetera, there are uh, things happening uh, which are uh, a class of algorithms which which are doing this uh, image-to-image transfer, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where I can uh, basically take your uh, body and then just swap out your face or sometimes even just swap out the lips, right? And uh, and then make you say... uh, things that you have not said, right? Right. And that's interesting because, you know, we are uh, a lot of the algorithms that uh, we're working with, even the -the state-of-the-art methods, are still leaving some artifacts that models can detect. Um, Like, you know, at AI Foundation, we internally, we have uh, uh, research as well as like a product that we are working on and from the nonprofit side where we are uh, detecting manipulated faces in video and showing a heat map over it, right, and so on. Uh, efficient frontier may be overloading a term, but there's a kind of a frontier where the uh, you know the the cost to generate these things and the um, the quality, the resulting quality, you know, versus a human's ability to detect. It seems like we're and uh, we're still in a different place than where audio is. Most of the things that are accessible that I see are pretty, you know, it's pretty easy to, to tell as a human that, you know, this is a bad fake. Yeah. Uh, but I would say that, you know, with GANs, I, will, with, I mean, when I say human, when you say humans, 
we have to be careful, right? Uh, you and I are probably looking at people like us who tend to be like, you know, more in the machine learning AI world. And we are used to seeing a lot of these things and we kind of like have uh, this innate expertise to tell them apart. But we have experiments we have done with human subjects where, you know, there's like human subjects who are like completely non-technical when they look at GAN images. There's literally like a 50-50 chance uh, that, you know, they get it right. Yeah. Uh, wow. And this is where, like, you know, I think a model becomes highly valuable. It gets worse when it when it becomes audio. With audio, practically everyone will fail. Uh, you, you made a comment and referred back to it that we're going to be dependent on models because humans are, you know, we're being outclassed by by models. Uh, and it makes me think a little bit of uh, there's been some research on, on medical imaging that says that, you know, the, a model is, uh, you know, X percent accurate at, uh, you know, say 80 percent accurate at detecting some uh, cancerous you know growth in an image. A human is 80 percent accurate. I'm making up the numbers here, but together they're 95 percent accurate or something along those lines. Do you think yeah. the same thing? will uh, evolve in fighting artificial content where humans plus models become the the ultimate solution absolutely i feel like that's that's even that's an inevitable case where humans and models work together except that i would uh, make a small uh, note that in that situation the kind of information that a human might look might be different from the kind of information the model is looking at, mm-hmm. right? Do you and, have some examples uh, come to mind? So, for example, uh, in in uh, in this case, you know, the the model might be, let's say, take fake audio, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the ma- the human may not be able to tell apart uh, the fake audio from a generated one, uh, let's say. Uh, uh, and sometimes, you know, with compression in audio, it can get even worse, like compressed images and compressed audio introduce all sorts of artifacts that you cannot distinguish between that from the artifacts that you get from a generated, uh, system from a system that does synthesis. Right. So we're kind of conditioned to accept some degree of compression artifact. And so, exactly. uh, got it, got it. Exactly, and and, uh, and and folks really have trouble uh, telling that just from the content, right? Mm-hmm. And so the models will like look at things that are or hear, listen to things that people can't listen to or see things that people can't see. But at the same time, you know, let's say the model flags something as uh, as uh, you know doctored or uh, forged, then. You, we can we can imagine a human in the loop actually like you know looking into it and not necessarily looking at the content but looking at everything else looking at the context like you know where is this coming from what is the user behavior and so on right I, to a large extent it can be automated but you know but even the context like it requires a lot of like background knowledge as well as like uh, knowledge of the world uh, to to be able to say to make to make a definite pronouncement. And we see this all the time in like uh, and I will give you an example from the spam world where I come from. Uh, so if you have training topics, right, 
so there is like a lot of things appear like spam. The model can flag it as spam. But if you know that, you know, this thing is actually related to a training topic, uh, then a human can make a judgment call whether to market a spam and take a, a, a retaliate reaction, like by suspending the account or something like that, uh, or whether to just uh, treat it as simply a high volume traffic because this trending topic is just so engaging and so controversial, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, and this is like a call that a human and only a human can make, at, at least as far as now, because the context is where uh, it requires all sorts of like reasoning and uh, unification with the world that it's hard to bake that into a model. I feel like we were just scratching the surface here, but uh, we're running long on time. I do want to briefly mention once again the book. If I remember correctly, there was a tweet. There were probably multiple tweets along these lines, but I I remember you tweeting something along the lines of like your philosophy uh, with the book, uh, or at least one aspect of it uh, relating to the code examples being real examples or something like that. Can you elaborate briefly on your, your philosophy for, uh, the book and, and what makes it different from, you know, picking up a tutorial on the web or on YouTube or any of the other books out there? Yeah. Um, so, um, when, when Brian and I set out to write this book, um, um, we decided to bake in all the best practices that we were, you know, actually practicing on a day-to-day basis. And also we were not seeing them on any of these uh, tutorials on the web and so on. Um, and on, or also on the da- original documentation. So we decided that, you know, there are like very good software engineering patterns. I mean, I've always believed because I come from a very engineering background. Uh, I was an engineer first and then became a researcher. Uh, I think really uh, good science requires good engineering and good engineering is like indistinguishable from good science. Like it's and it's important to have the two together. So we baked in a whole bunch of best practices that we knew of uh, from the software engineering world to actually make modeling good, uh, modeling successful, right? And so if you follow some of the practices that we suggest, uh, you would like not make a typical you know, modeling mistake that you'd spend uh, days, if not weeks, trying to chase down, right? Uh, so that's uh, that's what I meant by real world. And then, of course, uh, a lot of the uh, actual problems that we have chosen, uh, we intentionally chose problems that were not like toy problems, right, uh, or toy data sets. Uh, any of our data sets could be comparable to the real uh, uh, data sets that you anyone can deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a question of like, you know, uh, how do we come up with a set of representative tasks for the book that pedagogically it will expose the readers to a variety of uh, NLP deep learning algorithms and at the same time uh, not 
take the reader too far away from their home court, which is the world of practice where the world of real problems. And I want them to be situated next to each other. And hopefully if we did the, if, if we did our job right, we have shown the readers a lot of uh, good software engineering practices around building models. And, uh, and we also talk about like good design patterns not just from building models, but for even for the product, uh, building NLP products itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in a variety of ways, this book is actually built for practitioners. It is a book that is built for anybody who is good at uh, Python development to pick it up and quickly become familiar with natural language processing and deep learning and the combination of the two uh, and become enough proficient enough to go do their own research. And this is something I strongly believe in. A lot of people have also believed that you know research is something that uh, you can learn on your own uh, and uh, you don't need to go to graduate school and all that, like you know the fast AI folks and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we believe in the same thing, except we believe uh, we express it differently, uh, in in the sense that we think there is a lot of value in graduate school, and of course, and uh, and in, in all the research that is out there, uh, and there is a lot of value in reading papers and uh, and actually even writing papers. But there is all that has to be done in the context of real world product development setting. And every single course that I am looking at uh, today is failing on that, right? Mm. And I am hoping that, you know, the book that we wrote is just scratching the tip of that iceberg. Well, Delop, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about what you're up to. Uh, Very interesting stuff. And we will be sure to uh, continue to follow along. Absolutely. This was such a pleasure. And, you know, my God, time just flies. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. If you like what you've heard here, please do us a huge favor and tell your friends about the show. And if you haven't already hit that subscribe button yourself, make sure you do so you don't miss any of the great episodes we've got in store for you. For more information on any of the shows in our AI conference series, visit twimlai.com slash AINY19. Thanks again to HPE for sponsoring the series. Make sure to check them out at twimlai.com slash HPE. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.